You know how I know that? Aside from all the miracles that he did, some of those that are more impressive to us, like walking on water, it's not just a sleight of hand. He's in the middle of the Galilean Sea. How does that work? I don't know. The miracles that he did are to prove the message of the one who is providing that particular message. It's, it's not for uh, sleight of hand tricks or to show how, how wonderful Jesus is and maybe people will flock to him. What we find in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and Exodus chapter 7, verse number 12 is the ability of miracles given to, given to Moses from God. Remember that rod that he's supposed to throw down and it become a snake? That's a terrible miracle. No one wants snakes around them. Well, when he puts his down there and it becomes a snake, those other two, Jannies and Jamborees, put theirs down there and they become snakes. Saying to Moses, we can do what you can do, really, because his rod ate their rods. Hmm. Wonder what Pharaoh thought. Wonder how he could move and, 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 and look at those things and say, well, obviously, if I just believe in just those parlor tricks, Moses is a better magician than these guys. It wasn't the New Testament that, that Brang brought. Well, I, don't, I don't think Brang is a word. Bring Brang Brung, right? It's not the New Testament that brought miracles. Miracles happened since God said, let there be light. And there was. So when you and I look at 1 Corinthians chapters 11, 12, or 12, 13, and 14, we find uh, those gifts of God that were given to the church in the first century. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, prophecies, miracles, discernment of tongues and tongues and interpretation of tongues. We look at all of those things and what we see in our world religiously today is that none of those survived except for tongues. Or so we would be told that none of those survived except for tongues, right? Let me tell you something here. The age of miracles is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It has ceased. And, and I think that the, the, the tongues that are talking about in the religious world as they begin to creep in uh, survive because they're easy to fake. I can just say these things and tell you that it's some sort of spiritual language that you can't understand, but that God can. What? Every time I read anything in the Bible about how I'm supposed to teach and to preach and to understand that I'm supposed to use words people can understand, not words like brain. And now I'm supposed to be able to talk into some sort of spiritual language that only God can understand for what? Am I teaching God? Let me tell you what's hard to do. It's hard for you to fake healing my eyes. It's hard for you to fake raising my grandfather. It's hard for me to fake that. 
Wonder why they didn't survive. Well, because you can't prove those things. And so in John 11, what we find ourselves looking at is a miracle of Jesus the Christ. One of the, at least in, in my mind, one of the, the, the more in, impressive. In the totality of the, the New Testament, while Jesus is on this earth in the Gospels, we have three accounts. Three accounts of Jesus raising somebody from the dead. He raised that young lady. You remember her. Everyone was sad, and he said, she's not dead, she's asleep. And then everybody in the room laughed him to scorn until he walked in there and grabbed her by the hand and said, stand up, and she stood up, and then everybody stopped laughing then, didn't they? He raised that young man from the dead, and here you have an older gentleman. Not just any older gentleman found in John chapter 11. The older gentleman that is made mention in John chapter 11 is the one that Jesus loved. I'm sure, especially since Jesus was a very popular Person as his ministry went on and everyone was bringing to him folks who needed to be healed or folks who wanted to see or folks who needed this or that. I'm sure he was very popular. But really, when you look at the amount of people that were around Jesus... He only mentions about three or four people that are especially close to him. You have the three apostles, or the three uh, disciples here at this point who will become apostles who were on that mountaintop. James, John, and, and Peter. And those were close to him. You have this one mentioned as the one that you loved, Lazarus. And we can tell later on in this particular chapter of how much he thought of Lazarus. But not everybody was as close to him as we think they should have been. I would like to think of myself, and perhaps you would like to think this way too, I'd like to think of myself that, that if I were living back in, in that time and I were able to walk beside Jesus, that I would sort of do the best that I could to try to become his friend and then work my way up to try to become his best friend. I wonder if that's, is that selfish. I would want Jesus to know who I was. I would want him to look at me the same way he was going to look at, at Lazarus in this chapter. Now, when you and I begin to break this chapter down and the miracle that happens within this chapter in Jesus' life, there are three points of view found in this chapter. The sisters of Lazarus, 
the Savior, and then the sainted dead, the one known as Lazarus himself. Let's take a moment and look at what has happened up to the point where we find the sisters. The sisters and really the family of Lazarus here are, are dealing with sickness, verses 1, 2, and 3. And what they're dealing with is they're watching Lazarus on his deathbed. You been there? And they're feeling those same feelings you and I feel of, of helplessness. And what if I could do something to make it better, would I? Mary and Martha have the distinct privilege to be watching their brother pass away. And what we find out in verse number 21 is the sickness that Lazarus has is not like the common cold or the flu that he's going to get over. This was a sickness unto death. In 21, he passes away. And from 21 on, Mary and Martha... Perhaps look at Jesus in a different way. Four days earlier, they had sent word to him that Lazarus was sick. Four days. You know how long it takes you to travel from uh, the, the area of Capernaum down to Bethany? About a day and a day and a half you're walking. Not four. He had plenty of time. He could have gone. These sisters in verse 21 throughout the rest of the chapter began to look at him and say, so what's wrong with Lazarus? Why wouldn't you come and help him? He's the one you loved, right? Why not help our brother? Why not raise him from the dead? Their brother dead, they felt abandoned. There's an emotional swirl that's going on within their body. And, and they don't know what to do. They're distraught. Now, raise your hand if you blame them. Now, we know exactly how that feels. We know, we know the emotions that surround uh, the period of death in our family. We, we understand those emotions as they run high and how, how much more we react to them when they're heightened that way. And the sisters couldn't see past that, at least, at least for a while. 
Let's go back to verse number 25. 24, rather. Mary makes a statement first and then Martha next in, in, from 24 and then about verse 31 or 32. And as Jesus comes up, they make this statement, Had you been here? Had you been here, he would not have died. There are some commentaries that would place blame on Mary and Martha saying uh, that was an outlandish thing to say or perhaps even that was an out-of-the-way thing to say. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure it's an out-of-the-way thing to say. They had dealt with Jesus and seen Jesus. They knew what he was capable of. They knew if he was there, he would look on Lazarus with, Lazarus with compassion and he would heal him. Maybe it is the case if Jesus wasn't there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But what did Jesus say to his disciples before they even go? Lazarus is dead, and we're going to expose the power of God here in Bethany. When you look at it through the eyes of the Savior, you see a completely different scenario. He, yes, he waits four days. Do you know why? History would tell us, and, and I don't know how true or false this is, so you take this with a grain of salt. History would tell us that the, the uh, ancient Hebrew people would think that the soul and the separation of the body, that that soul would hang around for three days before it went to uh, Hades, the, the realm of the undead. It's interesting to note that Jesus waited four. I don't know if he did that for that reason. Back home, we would say he wanted to make sure he was good and dead. Well, he had been dead four days. When Jesus is walking and going to Bethany, he knows who he is. And he knows why he is going. He's already told those disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, let him sleep. That's good, right? You get rest, your, your body begins to recuperate. And he said, boys, I hear him in my mind being from southern Jerusalem. Boys, I don't reckon y'all understand me. Lazarus is dead. Verse 14. Oh. Not only does Jesus know who he is, he knows what he's done. He knows the miracles he's performed. A couple of blind people that we see in John chapter 5 and John chapter 9. We see him uh, changing water into grape juice in John chapter 2. 
We see him showing his ability over the, the natural world. And here's one more time. As he's walking to Bethany, I wonder how much more difficult each step gets. Because I know what, and he knows what, he's going to confront there. You remember the first one that runs out is Mary in verse number 24. And she crumples in front of him. You ever seen someone so distraught? Their legs can't hold them up anymore. They just sort of crumple and fall down. And she says, if you had been here, he hadn't, he wouldn't have died. That statement, can you imagine the amount of stress that that statement puts on Jesus? You could have saved him. If he was really your friend. It's up to you now. Jesus, in that, in that dialogue with her, would say, don't you know he's going to be raised from the dead? And she would say, yes, I understand. He's going to be raised in the resurrection, the last resurrection. To which Jesus says in verse number 25, <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life. Let's translate that just a little more clearly. I am the only reason for resurrection and life. I am the source of the resurrection. I am the source of life. She doesn't understand very well. The other sister comes out and says the same thing. They have the same discussion. The shortest verse in the New Testament in the English is found in this particular chapter. John 11 and verse number 35. Let me tell you why I love John eleven thirty-five. 35. So, when I began at the Memphis School of Preaching, I began in the third quarter of the first year which meant I had to go all the way through it and then wrap back around at the end of it and pick up the first two quarters. So when I walked in the door, I was already six months behind anyone else sitting in that uh, room. We had an English class that was taught by Brother Dan Cates, and they were Diagramming sentences. How many of you, we'll find out how many English nerds we have. How many of you love diagramming sentences? That's what I thought. And they were so far above my head, I couldn't even swim in the water that they were treading in. Well, the end of the quarter came, and the 
final test came, and you could hear that ominous organ music in the back. Doom, doom, doom. And I knew there was going to be diagramming of verses on this test, and I thought, this is going to be terrible. I don't think you can make below a zero, but I'm about to find out. A gentleman and I started at the same time, who's, who's a preacher in Corinth, uh, Tennessee. His name is Steve Hall. And we had a special test that Brother Cates gave us. And for a bonus, he said, diagram this sentence. Jesus wept. I said, Phew. I think I got that one. And we find that in this particular chapter, in verse number 35. Jesus wept. The idea of the words here are, are not really fully explained in its emotional detail as much as the original would be. Not that just Jesus openly cried. The idea here on the, the weeping portion of Jesus is that he's broken on the inside. He knows exactly what those sisters are feeling like because it is his friend. And there's something missing now that Lazarus is not here. And he's hurting. And he's broken. Now, don't raise your hand. Just think about this. How many times have you been sitting in pews that are very similar to this one? With a body that's lying in state here or in buildings like this. And you don't remember what was said. Or who all was there. Or how you got there. Or if you showered that day, or how you got dressed. It's because you're broken on the inside. And Jesus knows that feeling too. I had the privilege, the very distinctive privilege. to read an obituary and say a few things at my grandmother's funeral. And that's hard. But everyone knew when I stood up there and when Brother Butterworth behind me stood up there that there was not one shred of a possibility that either one of us would say, Opal, stand up, and she would. There was, that, that hope was not even on the table. There was no expectation for that. And because of that, that grieving process continued, which is different from this particular chapter. You can look at this death in the family of the sisters and you can 
understand why they felt the way they did. You can look at this death through the eyes of the Savior. You can understand why he felt the way he did. No, we can't really look at this uh, series of events through the eyes of Lazarus, but we're going to try. It's obvious to me that Lazarus was a godly follower of Jesus. And here, here's why, a few reasons why I tell you that. One, Jesus continually wanted to be with him and wanted to be supported by him and encouraged by him. There's something. We don't ever see or read of Jesus having to go to Lazarus and go, listen, I like you as a guy, but you're going to have to get it together spiritually. Seems like he already had that. He grew up in a Jewish household that is following after that old law because Jesus obviously is not dead yet. The church has not been established yet. And so everyone who's following after God at this point in time is following underneath that old law. Lazarus is, is living that life properly before God, and God doesn't choose to speak ill of him or say, uh, Lazarus is pretty good except he has finished this life, he has passed from this life, he has entered into the reward of the faithful. Another Lazarus for just a moment. Luke chapter 16, there's a parable, some would say, or an account. Jesus would tell us of a rich man and a man by the name of Lazarus who was a beggar. You'll recall that that rich man had everything that he wanted and that Lazarus only, really, Lazarus the beggar really only wanted to eat from the scraps off his table and they both died. Lazarus was carried into the, the bosom of Abraham uh, as if Abraham had his arm around him, holding him tight like a brother. That rich man died and opened his eyes and found out that he was where? In an opposite place of Lazarus. Lazarus is into, has entered into his reward. Lazarus, looking around where he is, knows exactly what the sentence for him will be on judgment day. Lazarus has every opportunity, Lazarus, the friend now, has every opportunity to put this on cruise and just wait. Nothing's going to change for him. Really. Standing before the cave in which Lazarus' body is laying, those mourners around would comment how Jesus loved Lazarus. The deep compassion that he would have for Lazarus and his family. And Lazarus finds himself in paradise until, until he hears the phrase, Lazarus, come forth. 
I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like. I don't even understand how it works, how a man is pulled out of paradise and put back on this earth. I don't know that I'd be happy about that. Let me tell you what Jewish history will tell you about Lazarus. And you can make up your own mind. I thought it was an interesting idea, but I don't know if I believe it. Jewish history would tell us that there was a conversation with Jesus and Lazarus after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Obviously. And the question that Lazarus would ask was, do I have to go back? Do I have to go back through the veil of death? To which Jesus would answer, yes. I, sure, I'm, I'm sure that probably happened. I'm not sure if the result here happened, but you make up your own mind. From that point in time, Jewish history would tell us that Lazarus never smiled again. I don't, I don't know if that's true. It's interesting. I don't know if that's true. He is pulled from a surety of eternity where he is, back to this earth where he can be tempted and could fall away from God. Is that one of the reasons why Jesus cried? It's hard to say. You see a group of two sisters who wanted their brother back. You see a, a Savior who who missed his friend, you see a one who is a saint of dead named Lazarus who said, why in the world did you bring me back here? And as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is found in John 11, verse 47 through 53. After he had proved himself over and over to have the authority and be the authority of uh, the Godhead while he is in this, uh, in this suit of flesh here on this earth. Here's what happened. Multitudes upon multitudes would follow him. 3,000, 5,000 at a time. Sometimes they would follow him so they could be fed. Sometimes they would follow him because that's the one they have to follow. That's the reason why they're here. They want to see this one. If he does what he says he can do, then they are completely and totally convinced and they're going to follow. And some people that he lived around who should never have hated him Hated hearing his name, that's how much they hated him. You hate hearing somebody's name? You hate hearing something? I know this is trivial. Tomorrow, our nation will more than likely tune in and watch the Georgia Bulldogs beat another team. I don't even want to hear their name. You have a disdain for someone so much, you don't even want to hear their name? 
Well, here comes, I don't even want to hear that. Some people hate him so much, they didn't want to hear his name. Not only did they hate him so much, they didn't want to hear his name. They hated him so much, they tried to find ways to kill him before they really killed him. Others said, who cares about this guy? They, they would disregard the things he says or how he says it. We know that the high priest lead us, not this guy, not this guy from, from Nazareth. Who is he? Who is he? Do you not see what he's doing? Who is he? And no matter where you fall, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to hate him. I'm going to, disre- I'm going to disregard him. I'm going to kind of follow him sometimes and kind of not. According to John chapter 12, verses 47 through 50, it's the words of this one single man that will judge us. It will judge us. Hmm. What am I going to do with him? Am I going to put him in the category of someone who is just a a miracle worker? Am I going to put him in the category of someone who was just a good guy? Am I going to put him in the category of someone who God used at the time that he was here, but now it really doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm in the 21st century and he was in the 1st century? Does it matter to you that all time for humanity is kept by one single person? Before Jesus was born, you know what time period that is? Before Christ. After he's born, we use the, the uh, uh, term A.D. or Domini in the year of our Lord. Does it matter that however many billions of people have been on this earth from time to time, that all of time is singled around this one person? Does it matter that he has all authority in heaven and in earth? Does it matter that he's told you and me to hear? Does it matter that he's told you and me to believe what he says? John 8 and verse number 24. Does it matter to you that he said you repent? Luke 13, 3 and 5. Does it matter to you that he said be baptized in water for the remission of your sins? Or rather Mark 16 and verse 16. Does it matter to you that he has said live faithfully unto me? Revelation 2, verse number 10, the latter portion of that verse, and I will give you a crown of life. Oh yeah, John chapter 11, he pulls a man out of the grave. Let him pull you out of the grave. Spiritually speaking, if you haven't put on Christ, it's time to do so. And brother or sister, if you have, and yet you find yourself back in the world, let him pull you back out of the grave. It's time to respond right now while we stand and sing.